you've gone with your two most important actions. They've gone with a couple important actions. And then the game gets to a point where, you know, they keep making attacks and you keep going, uh, okay, I guess, you know, I guess, you know, you know, like you have nothing to do to stop it. And it feels like they're top decking everything. And it's like, well, here's another two damage. Oh, oh, oh I, seems like I hit moderate on this one. I love when I do that. You know, here's another three <laughs> damage. Uh, you know, you, you just reach a point where it's like, well, the game feels a little out of your control, but they still have attack actions and you don't. Interesting. And that's what I'm creating with the Parker crew. Time for yet another Malifaux deep dive. This time we're talking about Parker from the Outcast faction. My two guests cover everything Parker. What he does, what crews they like to pick for him, the pools where he excels, and the pools to avoid. Make sure you stick around to the end. We have a nice discussion on actionable advice that can make you better at the game of Malifaux. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my time talking about Parker. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor for yet another Tabletop Talk Deep Dive. Today, we're going to be talking about the Outcast Master Parker Barrows and how the Bandit Crew works in Malifaux 3rd Edition. My guests today are Manuel Vindish and Cody Hyatt. Now, Manuel has been playing tabletop games for well over 25 years. He loves Parker, he loves theory crafting, and he loves the lore of Malifaux. So, Manuel, welcome to the third floor. Hey, thank you. Nice to be here. So, Manuel, um, there was a day where you knew nothing about miniatures and knew nothing about rolling dice or flipping cards to uh, battle it out with your buddies. Um, what made you discover or find out that even this hobby existed? And this was, I was quite young, like 12 or 13 years, and I went to, into game shop here in my city, and there was this funny little game with this really, really little miniatures and it was quite fun to look at and so i started playing demon world demon world i've never even heard of demon world what is that demon world was a map based with little hex fields and you had like these two and a half centimeter hex bases and they were like four infantrymen or two cavalry cavalry models on and it was like yeah like Playing a tactics game on a computer. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So that's that was your first mini game. Yeah. So when what was your next one? I shortly after followed with uh, like most of the people. I think Warhammer, forty k in my kind, and then some hero clicks and yeah, all the stuff out there. I tried, but I sticked mostly to Warhammer forty k. And hero clicks. 
Very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah, HeroClix, I'm hearing more and more often is kind of one of those gateway games as well. Um, and uh, they, uh, that's still going, uh, the HeroClix is. It's, um, but it's still in the collectible format, I think, right? Where you have to, you never quite know what you're going to buy. And the booster pack system, this was one of the things that got me out of there because I had like trading card games and this and that. And it was a lot of money when you're young. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, that's great. So how did you find Malifo? Uh, a friend of mine here heard about the game and he was like, hey, let's let's check it out. And <clears throat> he then became a henchman and introduced a lot of us here in the region to the game. And I was like, oh, this, the setting is cool. The styling is cool. I really love the models. It was a really hard decision to choose my first crew. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, let's give it a try. And so we started during early second edition. And from, from then it went on. So you've been play, playing for a good bit of time. Now I gotta I gotta ask because I had an initial reaction and a later reaction to it. What was your initial reaction to kind of the setting and the lore? I I kind of love it. It's this uh, mixture of steam fantasy, weird west, and all the things that I love in stories. And so that came quite natural to me to just love it. Very cool. Very, very cool. So, guys, my second guest, you've heard him on the show before. He's made a bit of a name for himself in the Malifaux community. Cody Hyatt is considered by some to be one of, if not the best player here in the U.S. Uh, he's also the host of the great Swamp Fiends podcast, which everybody should know I'm a huge fan of. Um, and I think uh, maybe my favorite podcast devoted to competitive Malifaux. So, Cody, welcome back to the third floor. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. I feel like we have you on every other week, so I don't know what the hell to ask you, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Um, so what uh, what is some big news or some uh, future future fun that's ha- happening on Swap Fiends? Um, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we have a lot of ideas sketched out, but uh, organizing is, you know, is always a pain. I'm sure you're very well of that. Yeah, and, uh, we don't we don't have a schedule or any uh, sort of Patreon to stay adherent to, so uh, we don't have that fire under our butt either. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, we're going to talk tilt at some point, hopefully with you. And yep. I want to talk about I don't know conversion, converting points and stuff like that. That's the next one I want to talk that's about. Interesting. I don't know. Whatever I say on this episode will probably already be out by the time. Yeah, yeah, out, I so. tend to record a little bit farther in advance than you do, so that's that's a that's a good point. Talk to me about uh, the meta down there in Florida. Um, well, I was really excited about it when I first moved here, but that was in January, and then everything shut down in March. Um, yeah. So um, it's interesting um, because it's a lot newer than North Carolina for sure. Uh, I think everyone, uh, most everyone who plays Malifo down here is is a con, like a convert from either War Machine or Guild Ball, right? Uh, like Jacksonville is all ex Guild Ballers. Um, uh, Orlando is all uh, ex War Machine and Guild Ball, I think. And then Tampa is uh, got the only ones who are like old Malifo players. Um, there's a henchman there who's uh, really good, and uh, so. But when I first moved down here, I went to a tournament, you know 
for the first two months, you know, yep. one tournament a month. So I'm hoping once everything kicks back off, uh, we'll get back to that, to that schedule. Um, and, and, but I think, I think it's definitely growing. Um, when I moved here, obviously no one played in South Florida because no one plays minis in South Florida. You can tell as yep. you lived here. I mean, yep. if, if you're close to a beach, you don't play minis games. And if you're I know, it's so weird, man, when I moved down there and I, that I was in Florida when I discovered Warhammer, I was, that's when I was living in Florida was when I first discovered it. And like, I, I mean, no shortage of game shops. I mean, you've got uh, Tate's comics, you've got a, a bunch yeah. of, you know, really good game shops that were down there at the time. Some of them have closed down since then, but um, yeah, I could not scrap together a game to save my life. <laughs> I had to drive all the way up to, um, Oh, what is the name of that town? Uh, yeah, it was Melbourne. Yeah, that's exactly what it Melbourne. was. That was the closest I could do to get a game was to drive it to Melbourne, which was a freaking you know almost two hour drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think a, a pretty easy rule of thumb is the more depressing your winner is, the more likely you play war games. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. So. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. I still never figured it out though, um, yeah, because we, there's there's a ton of people down there. I got like four guys now uh, down here um, that have been coming to my apartment and then go into their apartment back and forth. Um, since you know we've been able to play some mass games so that's been nice good uh, yeah good 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 all right guys so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on parker barrows and the bandit crew we're going to try to dig deep into how they build a bandit crew how the crew plays maybe some key tech pieces that they can bring based off of the strategy scheme pool or maybe even the opponent declared faction or master and we're going to go over how to counter the bandit crew uh listeners know that i've been trying to get this uh together for a while now so i'm real excited um we're going to take a quick break and we get back from this break uh we're going to talk about the kind of master that parker burrows is we'll be right back This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Howdy, friends. Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code.
So, Manuel, I want you to imagine that uh, someone listening right now has never played Parker Barrows, never seen Parker on the table, uh, unlike you didn't play maybe in uh, second edition. Um, what do you think is a good way to describe kind of the style or type of master he is? For me, Parker is this uh, sort of guerrilla and sort of resource control master where you just handle your cards, the enemy cards, and the soul stones. So you seem so you seem as a control master in some ways. I always imagine like him walking down the down the street and like orchestrating the bandit raid. Gotcha, gotcha. How about for you, Cody? How much does that sound close to what you consider him to be? Yeah, I mean, I, he's like Malifaux's equivalent of like Arthur Morgan and Danny Ocean mixed together. So yeah, he's 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 organizing those bandit raids, but. Um, uh, and, and everything is, um, like Manuel mentioned, sort of about efficiency to me, where he's efficient with the cards, efficient with the stones, efficient with the plus flips. Uh, all of the uh, the keyword abilities that we'll get into sort of play up to that um, general idea that anytime you're getting one thing going off, you're getting multiple things. And those things are less impactful because, you know, it's just a ragtag group of, you know, um, bandits and uh you know, otherwise, uh, ne'er do wells, um, <laughs> trying to lay down enough fire just so they can steal the loot and get out. Uh, so the actions in themselves are less uh, impactful on an individual basis, but there's a volume um, to everything that you're trying to pull off that really speaks to both the feel of the crew and how effective it is on the table. So if I if I were to ask what his signature ability is, is there really kind of one or two signature abilities that surround the bandit crew? Yeah, so I think uh, before we get into like the signature abilities on his card or anything like that, I think it's best to talk about the common themes. Great. So um, one thing that's uh, pretty common across the crew is access to run and gun, which is the ability to charge and then take a gun action. Access to gunfighter which is they can take melee attacks with their guns instead of shots and uh, life of crime, which is on a lot of the keyword models, which is uh, at the beginning of their activation, they could eat a scheme marker within four uh, enemy are friendly to game fast. Uh, so all of those three sort of things that basically speak to um, what I think is his biggest strengths in that he is a gun crew and he is, you know, he, he does damage and he does scheming and stuff like that. But there are no sort of inherent weaknesses that often come uh, with other gun crews that could be traps, you know, like standing in your deployment zone, shooting all game, never scoring your points, devoting too much time at making attacks, um, being too slow. He gets around all of that stuff with those three abilities. Um, so in that way, I think, uh, I think uh, we'll probably make the case for it throughout this episode, but I think he's probably the best master in the game, in my mind, for new players. Interesting. Interesting. Manuel, have you found that to be true? Uh, he is quite easy to get in, but I would say it's it's hard to learn when to use what. You have these lot of tools, and sometimes you, you think like, hey, this hitting the stick up now is perfect when you just have shot them with your gun. Right. Right. Yeah, I would imagine with that many that much flexibility and efficiency, um, knowing when to the here's a nice 
pun for you, know when to pull which trigger um, is, I would imagine, you know, part of the big challenge of what happens when you get ba- uh, better with him. Um, so Cody made the case that, you know, he's all about efficiency. Is that is that how you see him as well, Manuel? Yeah, like being efficient, getting your cards, getting your soul stones, stealing soul stones, stealing cards, just turn the favor in your direction. So let's start off by talking about the efficiency of his stone game. So where do we find soul stone efficiency on with Parker and the Bandits? Yeah, the first thing is in Parker's abilities himself. He's got this bonus action, cashing out. You just stand there, the enemy got his sheet markers all set up and ready, and you just say, hey, thank you, I take it, and I get cards, and I can get soul stones for them. And this, uh, coupled with the ability to force him to drop the scheme markers, that's just efficiency in itself. Yeah, so Cody, let's talk about that, because it tends to be a pretty unique mechanic for him, um, the idea of sticking him up. Yeah, um, so... I, I guess what is also a, a pretty wide reaching keyword ability across the keyword is that they have access to drop it, which is a trigger on the tome to drop a, a ski marker base to base with the target. So this is um, the enemy model that you shot drops one of their ski markers and they have to place it. They get to place it where they would like, but they get to, they have to place it within LOS of the model that took the action Mm-hmm. It's very uh, important when we get down to countering the crew and second level play. Um, but effectively what he's doing is he's getting you to drop a bunch of enemy scheme, uh, scheme markers, um, which is going to either uh, eventually he'll cash out on all of that and make a bunch of stones and things like that, like Emmanuel said, or um, he might just mess up your schemes by making you drop schemes uh, where you didn't want them. And then you, right. know, you can't drop them within four because there's another one here that's being annoying, those sorts of things, or his models will eat those schemes to gain fast. And I think it's really important for us to spell out, because um, I think it's a weekly occurrence that somebody in the uh, AWP is going to get in an argument about what scheme marker is dropped mm-hmm. um, as part of that trigger. I mean, it specifies uh, enemy scheme marker, and that's always going to be relative to the model taking the action. So if it's Parker causing the drop, drop it, it's going to be the other person's scheme marker, right? Right. Yep. Okay, cool. Now, Cody, let's talk about his offensive ability. So we see some efficiencies. We see some ways that he's gaining stones and uh, doing some shenanigans and run a gun makes him, uh, it makes his movement efficient. Um, Is he putting out any damage? Yeah. So I like to think of Parker um, as a model that does a lot for his crew, but doesn't really need much from his crew. And his card and his actions and his damage output sort of reflect that. So before getting to his damage, we have to call out what I think is the best ability on his card, which is draw their attention. And what that is, is if he deals damage, then he can discard a card to have any model in LOS take an interact action. So good. So what you're trying to do with most Parker activations is do some sort of damage so that you can get activate, you can get interactions, uh, interact actions anywhere on the table. And that could be either to drop schemes for future fasts or to score your points, obviously. So I think for that point, uh, he's most likely taking his six shooters actions with most uh, AP, uh, considering he doesn't have to take walk actions a lot either because uh, he can charge wherever he wants, shoot three times. Uh, it's a stat five with a plus flip, but it gets a plus one to the stat for each scheme marker within three of the target up to two. So he can go to stat seven. 
Right. Um, but what is most important, I think, on that action is the plus flip uh, because that's getting around concealment, which is a big problem for a lot of shooting crews. Uh, but even when concealment is not a problem, plus flips just change the math so significantly. And it really feeds into that efficiency angle because um, if you're comparing, you know, stat five with a plus versus stat seven, the biggest benefit there is you're usually uh, out flipping your opponent. Right. So uh, even though you can't get a lot of actions through um, when you really need them sometimes, that plus flip means your opponent has to cheat defensively all the time or you're just constantly top decking them. Uh, and I think that's his biggest offensive output. Well, and, and I've talked about it before and so have other guests that, that the, what a plus flip does on an attack is put hand pressure on your opponent because, again, you're forcing them to have to make the decision on whether they're going to cheat or not. And you may not have any intention of cheating whatsoever, and the fact that you may be potentially pushing them to cheat um, can be a big deal. Manuel, how, uh, Cody seems to make it sound like you know you just shoot three times with Parker most of the times. Is that typically how you spend his AP? Yeah, it's a lot of times just straight shooting, but sometimes there's these these points where you want to force the opponent even more, and then you just you stick up and you tell them, hey, either you discard cards now or you get this straight damage. And this is like forcing your opponent's hands. And that gets to the concept of pressure, right? That gets to the concept of pressure and the concept of uh, controlling him. You right. can, if you pair this with uh, some versatile time models we come to later, I guess, uh, then you can have a lot of hand pressure on your opponent. And he's like, okay, do I really want to drop these cards now or do I have to spare them for later and just take the damage now? So I'd be curious, Manuel, do you, what is it um, that keeps Parker alive? So we got a kind of a sense of his movement tricks. We get a sense of uh, some of his ways for uh, resource management, putting pressure on people's hands. Um, what's stopping an opponent from just wiping him off the board? If you look at Parker's card, there's no like outstanding defensive ability, but he's surprisingly tanky. He's just like the six defense, six willpower, 15 hit points, and the constant income of soul stones, this is like, okay, yeah, shoot me. I hold more than you think. And then in his crew, there's this built-in healing, even if it's not a lot. But on Parker himself, this is really impactful. Sure. You know what? I didn't even think about that. You can, you, you can be a little bit freer doing preventive uh, stone spending because, because of his ability to gain new stones. So that, that makes sense. I'd be curious for you, Cody, how often does Parker see the end of turn five in most of your matches? Um, it really depends on if Assassinate is in the pool. To be yeah. honest, like if, if, Par if I'm taking Parker into Assassinate, they can probably score it. Um, but a lot of games, it's, it's too inefficient to kill Parker if you're not scoring points off it explicitly because like I said he doesn't his turn five is not super impactful because he is stat five with a plus and he can't guarantee that there are uh, scheme markers to get up to stat seven his damage track is two four five which is not uh, something to write home about if you're not taking focused attacks um, or hoping for moderates on negatives which is what he's doing most of the time um, so like there's not a lot of incentive to really focus fire him like other masters um, right because he is sort of supporting the crew in certain ways if the crew's dead then he's just kind of another plus flip uh he's just getting three actions instead of two 
So I think that is also his survivability in some ways in that he, if you, when we talk about the dock, uh, that can also make it more inefficient. And, you know, he's range 12 with his gun. He's got running gun. He's got reposition trigger on his gun. So if stuff gets squirrely, he can just get out of it. Um, right. So I think devoting a lot of attention to killing him is often a trap if you're not scoring points off. Well, and it sounds like it could be a bit of an AP sink, and it doesn't sound to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound like Parker is one of those linchpin masters, right? There's some some masters out there that if you take out that master, you're going to really greatly decrease the effectiveness of the crew. And it sounds like, no question, Parker's good, but um, if he's dead, you can still win the game. Yeah, like taking him out early obviously shuts down all of the fast engine that we're going to talk about. Um, but like him dying on four or five is not... Super terrible. Also, uh, another thing is with Cash It Out, uh, he's often going to go in and score, get all those soul stones and cash out on all the droppets that he's landed. And that puts him in increased danger. So he does die that way too. Right. Eventually he has to like sort of uh, be relevant. Or, and, and, and he often tries to start scoring points himself. Um, so he can get killed that way. That makes sense. Manuel, is there anything else about Parker before we move on to the crew itself that we need to make sure we call out? It's, yeah, just what we said. It's this versatility. It's this resource management. And we shouldn't forget his bandit rate ability, I, I think. This is the ability where you just give another bandit an extra action. Like, okay, you've been over there. I have nothing to shoot with Parker, so I'll just let you shoot him. And if you take something like Metoc Bracket to shoot another time, that can really hurt. Yeah, yeah, and and, and a, a somewhat of an efficient trade, um, especially with the effectiveness of of Mad Dog. All right, so let's now go talk about Phase Two. So we've declared Outcast, we've declared Parker, our opponent has declared their master, and now you're going to go to the job of looking to the scheme pool and actually building your crew. So let's start off with what I what I like to call the core crew, which are um, and well any models that you automatically hire. Uh, so regardless of the scheme pool, regardless of the opponent, you're guaranteed that there's one or two, maybe even four or five models that are going to be part of your crew. And I think where we have to start off with with Parker is talking about his totem. So can you talk to me about his totem? Yeah, this totem is Doc Mitchell. He was uh, taken prisoner, prisoner by the Parker crew and they dragged him with them. And he's there almost all the time drunk and taking care of the wounds of the bandits. Uh, he's really useful because he's got this awesome ability, Arcane Reservoir, that I really, really want to have in my Parker Barris crew. And he's a decent healer with his healing action. He gets fast if he uses the 8 action. And he's got bedside manners. And this is another way to get your yeah endangered minis out of the fray. Just like, come, get out of there. Yeah, bedside manners are a great ability. I love any model that has that ability. And so he's... Really, really easy and dangerous, so keep him safe. Keep him a little in the background, <laughs> even if you have to get close to use the heel, use the bedside manners. Try to protect him, but as long as he's there, he's really, really, really worth all the salt. 
Yeah, it's funny from a model perspective and from a lore perspective. Um, he's always been one of my favorite totems in the game. Um, if you've never looked at the model, uh, look it up online. It's a it's a very funny model, and uh, the idea that he's there drunk and unwillingly, I think, is 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 fantastic. Um, Cody, how important is uh, uh, the totem to your game plan? Very. Um, I would say that he's probably one of the most generically powerful totems in the game. Like if you were to uh, strip away the synergy that any of the uh, masters like if your favorite master has like you know crazy synergy with his totem obviously it's necessary for the crew to function but i think uh if you were to plug this guy into any of those slots w- where the synergy isn't required then you're you're thinking that's a trade up because yeah you're getting arcane reservoir you're getting the healing he only re- he needs a five on his healing which is nice most most models need a six uh, so that's nice and yeah that bedside manner is massive it's just uh you put a model out if they go into it, you pitch a card, he places within three and the mad dog activates, heals it twice. You know, it's yep. like whatever alpha you, you thought you had, it's gone now. I, I would, so I would make the case that he has to be one of the biggest target priorities because he can keep things. He, he can just nullify so much of your AP with his healing. That is, and the bedside manner, uh, like aura is so impactful. Uh, he, in, in the fact that you're knocking down, uh, arcane reservoir, it, he needs to go down really quickly. Yeah, I would imagine he uh, tends to uh, go pretty high on the uh, target priority list for your opponent. Now, it it sounds like you would pay for him if he was if he wasn't the totem, right? That's he's that good. But um, let's talk about the models you do pay for. So, Cody, what is is there at least one model you're guaranteed you're going to be hiring every time you run bandits? I think you have to make a hard case to not bring Mad Dog. Um, He's so good. Um, he's 10 stones now, but what he brings is a min three shotgun, uh, that has a blast damage on every, uh, damage track is three, four, five has incredible triggers, has a built in trigger to ignore armor, which just changes the math on so many matchups that occur at master declaration. Uh, unlike the rest of the keyword, he doesn't have plus flips on this gun, but for balance reasons, obviously, (laughs) um, but that, that can be his, his weakness is that uh, if he gets bogged down, if there's a lot of concealing terrain, if there's a lot of friendly fire, uh, he can be uh, nullified. But when he is not, he is an absolute uh, wrecking ball. Uh, I would say that because he has the blast, he has the additional uh, blast trigger as well on the ram, um, that it's not crazy to say that like er- every one in seven games – he's going to have a 20 plus damage activation. Wow. And that's no kidding. And, and like, if, if you, if you're hearing that, you're like, well, just spread out forehead, you know, something like that. It's like, no, it's, it's not even like hitting five models. It's hitting two models because yeah. you know, like your red jokers somewhere. <laughs> and when he hits it, it's, it's a big problem. Like if he hits it on the attack and he gets the extra blast and he, you know, he's cheating up to straight, he's going to put five damage here, four damage there. And then he's going to hit it two more times for three more damage. If he hits the red on neg- on a negative to damage, you know, he's doing six here and four there. Right. Um, so he can just absolutely pop off. And when you're thinking about, you know, going to a tournament, you're playing five rounds. If he's going to have a game winning activation, you know, every one out of 10 games, then that's like, that's a consideration. Well, and I think he's hard to kill. 
which um, may be the best defensive tech out there. Um, he's also got um, grit, which I think is interesting. Um, and once that gets into play, then suddenly he does have those plus flips. Um, how about you, Manuel? Are you bringing uh, Mad Dog in every crew? Yeah, absolutely. He's just going there, doing what you want him to do. And there's a lot of games where his bonus action is blow it to hell can really, really save you. It, if you have a cover problem, blow it to hell solves it. If you have an ice pillar problem, blow it to hell solves it. <laughs> and facing Euripides as Parker Barrows, you're really, really happy about having this blow to hell ability. And I mean, he's got a quite hefty damage. So he's one of the models that triggers a fistful of script script most of the time where you're right. able to kill an enemy and just drop a scheme marker there and this is either a fast for you or it's a point for you just from a kill yeah something you wanted to do anyway right yeah absolutely very very cool so what's next after that for you manuel you've you've hired mad dog you've got your totem um where do you now look uh typically as you're building your core bandit crew if i choose to bring the bandit crew I want to scheme. And so it's one or two of his basic bandidos. I think they are just like great basic models. They have the speed. They have a lot of this action economy with the trigger finger ability. They are not so easy to pin down. They also have the at gunpoint ability. This is really a corner case to use, but sometimes it's an obey at the right moment if your opponent doesn't discard a card. And I just really like them spreading out, running there, and doing just what gives me points. Yeah, Cody, it feels like the Banditos is a, is a, a lot of model for five stones. Yeah, um, so the one thing to mention about the Bandito is because the trigger finger is, um, is uh, drops the scheme marker within eight, um, and you would... I, I just want to call this out before we talk about them more is uh, a lot of the overt synergy that you see on the card is you're like, okay, well, I have drop out, drop it everywhere. So I can just, you know, trigger drop it and then the banditas get additional actions. But again, it's the model who took the action. Right. Uh, it has to be an LO, the, the scheme marker you drop has to be an LOS of the model that took the action. And because of the way scheme markers work in the rules, you can declare with intent to keep the scheme marker you're dropping outside of LOS of, you know, whatever model by just saying, okay, it's on the other side of this model. So it's not, it doesn't have LOS to that bandit. So I guess this is, this is like the counterplay and you can also drop scheme markers underneath yourself. So right. let's say Parker is standing here. He shoots that model, hits the, his version of the drop it trigger. Um, and so you have to place a scheme marker of yours within LOS of Parker, you can just say, well, I'm going to drop it here uh, and not give LOS to that bandito. So it doesn't get the extra action. Just FYI. Now, Cody, is there, are, do you ever run um, Parker Barrows without a bandito? Is this a common hire for you? I never play banditos ever. Interesting. Really? Yeah. Really? And, and why is that? So Manuel obviously is a fan, but uh, what stops you from bringing them in? Well, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit because uh, I just don't like the five stone uh, point and the fact that you can easily deny their extra efficiency with, 
um, the, you know, placing the ski markers out of LOS. Um, to me, I'll say it's, it's a lot personal and, and it's second is what I'm trying to do with my crew when I declare Parker. Uh, so the personal bit is, uh, when I'm writing a list, I don't want too many models that are eating, have, uh, that have life of crime because that's, uh, you got to have ski markers out to get that fast. And if at a certain point you are pulling too many resources from Parker to give ski markers to some of the smaller models. Uh, and then the second part is that um, I play outcast. So when I see banditos, I just kill them. So right. like, I get that. Like if you're, if you're never born and you're only melee, it's like, okay, uh, they're, they're like a problem because they can, you know, you don't want to devote the resources to go kill them off on a flank or something like that. So those are, those are my personal hangups with them and why I don't bring them. Uh, that being said, I, I have brought them more in GG one because they are good hidden martyrs. Uh, ah. cause a lot of the models in this keyword are eight stones and he's five. So that's 13. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So I'd be curious then Cody. So after mad dog, what is your next hire? Sue, uh, Sue nice. is almost guaranteed to be in my crew. Uh, even if, yeah, I, I really don't see a lot of reasons to not bring him just because he's, there's a lot of competition at that eight stone, uh, area. He's got the Wokus, he's got the convict and he's got Sue. Um, Sue is just far and away the first one you should take of those three, uh, because he does have hard to kill, um, comparing himself to the convict. He does not have life of crime, so he cannot get the fast from the ski markers, but he has the built-in plus flips. He has a built-in ram on his gun. So he's a min three gun. And that can also be in melee because gunfighter. Uh, so I just think he's the most survivable one of those eight stones. And not having life of crime is it kind of it kind of hurts at a list writing perspective. But right. what I was saying before is you don't want to have too many life of crime models in your crew. Otherwise, you're leaving efficiency on the board because you're not going to have all the ski markers that you need to get fast with everything. So he's the first one of me. It's like, well, I need a model who doesn't have that ability. So I want this guy because just every activation he does is very impactful with that, with that crit strike gun. So I'd be curious for you, Manuel, are you hiring Sue and, and as, as high on him as Cody is? Yeah, absolutely. He's the, the second beta I want to bring if I really want to do the damage. It's just a great model. And I, I tend to bring some more support models, so I know about this problem of not having enough scheme markers. But for me, it's this uh, decision point. Like, do I really need to spend these scheme markers for them to get fast just because they have the ability? For Sue himself, he's just a great model. He's doing his damage. I just think it's difficult to bring his... His bonus actions, like the Man in Black and, and Ring of Fire, sometimes for me it's hard to yeah, make it efficient. Right. And this is for me the downside The downside with Sue. And he's an enforcer, so he's harder to protect. But as a beta, as a damage-dealing machine, I really like him. So we're in a situation now, Manuel, where you've got, uh, you know, two models in the core crew that are adding up to 18 stones. Um, so that's two, two expensive models in a core crew. You're picking up a couple banditos, one or two banditos. Um, is there any other model um, that we need to call out as something that you would consider core to uh, a successful bandit crew? I wouldn't call any other model like 
core. The other models, they are depending on the situation, on the enemies, on the pool, and all that stuff. How about you, Cody? Is there anybody else that's a guaranteed hire? No. um, A lot of the strength of Parker is, uh, like we said before, in that he gives stuff to his crew, and the opposite is not true. He doesn't need his crew to function. So that's one of the biggest strengths of declaring Parker is that he's really good at sliding in versatiles. He's really good at sliding in second masters. He's really good at uh, taking what you need and just having a master who he's not, he's not thirsty either. He doesn't need severes. So he can just be an efficiency little bot while you cater your list to uh, better meet the needs of the matchup. So I'd be curious then, Cody, is there any out of keyword or versatile models that are not necessarily maybe crew, uh, core to the crew, but ones that you find yourself bringing in uh, on a common uh, basis? Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I reached to anything more than uh, anything else. And it's just all matchup dependent. You know, like if I want to score a leaving mark, I bring in the emissary. If I want to deny grand jump, I bring in zip, you know, something like that. Um, but I want to take a step back that probably explain like the differences between uh, what um, Manuel and I are thinking in terms of what we're doing with Parker uh, and also explain like why I only have like two core models. So when, when I'm declaring Parker, I want, you know, one of two things, right? First of all, you want to do interactions. You want to, you want to, you want to scheme and you want to, that's why you're declaring him. But the other thing I'm doing with Parker is, I really want to lean into the two characteristic things of the rest of his keyword, which is having a two, four, five damage track with plus flips. Um, Now what that does is it makes it where if you make enough attack actions, you're going to hit moderate and you're going to hit red on negative. So I'm often building a Parker list. So I know we've all been there, right? Think about a game where, you know, you spent, you know, five card, four out of your six card hand. Uh, you've gone with your two most important actions. They've gone with a couple important actions. And then the game gets to a point where, you know, they keep making attacks and you keep going, uh, okay, I guess, you know, I guess, you know, you know, like you have nothing to do to stop it. And it feels like they're top decking everything. And it's like, well, here's another two damage. You know, oh, oh, I, Seems like I hit moderate on this one. I love when I do that. You know, here's another. Uh, You know, you just reach a point where it's like, well, the game feels a little out of your control, but they still have attack actions and you don't. Interesting. That's what I'm creating with the Parker crew. So on the important turns, I want as many plus fips as possible, as many attack actions as possible. I want everyone to attack what's in front of them. I don't, you don't have to get too fancy about it. And you're just taking the attack actions that are available. And a lot of the times, uh, because I'm doing that, I'll look, I'll look up from turn two and I'll just be like, oh, um, hmm. well, I was just attacking what I could attack, but you just let me know when you want to surrender. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun to play against. <laughs> cool. I mean, I mean the, you're, you know, you're playing Yu-Gi-Oh! You're playing Heart of the Cards. You know? You're going to hit yeah. those moderates on negatives. You're going to hit the red on damage track. That's the benefit of like the only thing you're upset hitting red with is Mad Dog's Blow to Hell action. Every single other action that you, like you're going to go through your deck and you're going to hit red. And it's going to be important. And in some, sometimes it's game-winning important. So sure. That's, what I, that's the overall idea 
that I'm bringing to writing a Parker list. It is you you want to burn through your deck. You want to make sure that that red joker is showing up every turn and which is going to do to your point as you're burning through that deck. And um, it sounds like there's just a certain level of relentlessness that you're going for. Um, And uh, that that sounds like it can be absolutely brutal um, as you go through it. Um, Manuel, is there. is there a case for hiring or bringing in a second outcast master? Do you find yourself hiring a second master with Parker? I'm personally just just not a fan of the all the second master thing. Maybe maybe it's like a European thing, but <laughs> I, I feel over here we don't do this as often. It's like um, it's like a lot of points. I mean, I'm like spending sixteen points for three AP. And I can bring up bring other things. So for me, it's not like really. I don't feel the need to have another master. How about you, Cody? Are you hiring and bringing in uh, another outcast? Uh, when it's good for the pool, um, like like I said, before, he doesn't need his keyword models, so he can bring in second master Zip to just okay. Well, Zip's whole job is to throw down pianos and make sure they don't get claim jump because I'm pretty sure that's what they're doing. Uh, he can bring second master doll and he can really lean into his whole discard card mechanics with him. Right. That negative willpower aura. Um, there's just a lot of like, I don't know, I guess more or less fun you can have with the second masters, but I don't think it's, it's a crutch competitively. It's like nothing I reach to first for sure. Like, like I said, uh, just previously, I'm I'm primarily leaning to the rest of the other models in the keyword that had the plus flips. So that's the convict and the Woku first before I'm going to a second master, and that's also sixteen points. Uh, right, eight guys. Um, how about uh, now? I'd imagine um, him uh, being somewhat independently valuable is is he a good second master for another outcast master? Yeah, he's probably the best. Um, Interesting. I've played a lot of Terra with Parker as a second master just because his um, draw their attention ability isn't leader only or anything like that. So if you just need more interact actions, you could bring Parker and, and there you go. You have more interact actions. Um, and yeah, because he's not thirsty, he doesn't need severes. He can just sort of sit in the back, crank out three shots a turn, give you some extra interacts uh, and just not be a burden. And um you know, we use this term a lot, but um, I always try to be hesitant not to uh, assume that everybody knows. When you say thirsty, Cody, what do you mean? Uh, like uh, needy, I guess. Um, excessive from needy. a resource perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So he's not he's not chewing up your cards. He's not uh, eating eating up um, um, other resources for you. Um, yeah. And uh, it's a concept that I think is easy to forget in general um, is and I, I tend to make this mistake when I hire is I hire a bunch of thirsty models and I find myself having the resources I need for two of the models and then the two other models needed those same resources and I've already blown them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's something you definitely need to consider. Um, Manuel, how about uh, upgrades? How often are you uh, putting upgrades? on a bandit crew i'm not personally not a the biggest fan of the outcast upgrade pack so there's sometimes where are like hey the servant of dark powers is really cool but i don't see this much in in a parker crew for me the parker crew is capable of a lot of things on their own and the the high point costs on the models 
they scare me a little bit from the spending two other extra points to have an upgrade. Yeah, I can see that. How about you, Cody? I know that you're not super high on the Outcast uh, upgrades in general. No. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty telling when Wanted Criminal was like clearly written to be a Parker sort of upgrade. And even then you're kind of like, Ugh, I don't yeah. know about this. Because like Manuel said, if you're, if you're making an eight stone model, 10 stones, just so that you can maybe draw two cards throughout the course of the game and get maybe one or two free focus. That's not a, even, even if it, things work out, that's not a, it's not a super good proposition we're talking about there. Um, you, you can put wanted criminal on like Benny, if you want to just sort of <laughs> like, uh, just farm cards in the, your deployment zone for most of the game. Uh, or I, I kind of like it on a Woku because they do take walk actions so that they, they're getting that swagger and they have drop it on their um, melee attack. So they're more likely to be in range to actually benefit from the extra card draw. Um, it, it, I don't think there's anything that needs to be stapled to anything here. Sure, sure. So, guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to get a little bit more specific. So we're going to talk about uh, specific strategies and schemes that Parker and the Bandit crew do well with um, and ones that you want to avoid if you're going up against Parker. So we'll be right back. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is. We won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Time for a quick shout out to our most recent patrons. A big thank you goes out to Peter Sojak, Nathan E. Hoyle, Jimmy CZ, Wayne Peacock, Oliver Borden, Zachary Wills, J. Douglas Nielsen, Patrick Healy, Ifrit V. Diablo, Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, and Joe Root. Because of them and the 100 plus other patrons, we're able to put out content to you on a regular basis. Thank you. Hi there. This is Owen from the Nova Open, and I am a $5 patron third floor wars because i love supporting the whole malifo community i want to help craig and the whole third floor wars team continue making the fantastic content that gets me through my daily commute you should join me in supporting the show just pause this episode head to patreon.com and search third floor wars or grab the link in the show notes see you there Something that makes Malifaux unique um, is the fact that you don't build your list um, in a vacuum. Um, you have a lot of context as you finalize your 50 stone list. And, you know, a big part of that is, of course, what the pool is. Um, what are there going to be the win conditions, the conditions that bring points? So in general, Manuel, when you're 
looking at um, the four strategies that are out there, is there a particular strategy that just screams bandit to you? For me, it's like corrupted ley lines where I see bandits, mobility, lodestone management, Parker. This is because I have all this mobility in the gr- in the crew. I can run and gun, get my new position, shoot the enemy, passing the lodestone, triggered by draw their attention, and I have all the possibilities. I have the movement. I have the oomph to stop the opponent. So this is why I want to bring bandits to corrupted ley lines. Now, is there any particular models that you bring in specifically if the strategy is corrupted ley lines? Is there any tech pieces for corrupted ley lines for you? For me, it's the emissary and the combination with the fast models, with the fast bandits. Because they get from the emissary, they get the small push, a little bit of movement. They get the scheme marker to trigger the fast and so that they can cross half the battlefield in just one go, be there on the next place where I want the lodestone to be. And this combination, I just really love. If you take in Bandit Raid from Parker and even Sue's ability to give them extra movement, if they are moving towards a marker, that's just great. That, that makes sense. Um, how about for you, Cody? Do you see yourself bringing Parker as the uh, the pick and outcast for corrupted ley lines? Um, I kind of treat Parker as a generalist, so there's no real scheme that um, stands out to me as his best. There's obviously, you know, I don't really want to bring him into public enemies or anything like that. But um, yeah, he's 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 quite good in ley lines for sure because. Like Manuel said, you get the extra efficiency with the interact action so you can pass the stone so you don't have to have just one model who's dedicated to running it, you know, and um, uh, you can have, you can play space a lot better than other crews. Um, The current packet doesn't really incentivize spreading out too much, but uh, the previous one did. And when GG2 comes out, it might uh, lean more towards the GG0 uh, space, in which case... um, Spreading out is kind of Parker's shtick because, you know, he has range 12 and his big um, draw their attention thing uh, is anywhere within LOS. So it's not, there's no range there. Um, so, yeah, he's good at that, too. Is there any of the other strategies, the other three strategies where you think that there is something interesting that people might have missed? Um, so maybe they don't think about the bandit crew, uh, but uh, maybe if they um, understood a certain uh, aspect of the bandit crew, they would realize that, you know, he's a generalist and he can handle just about anything. Hmm. Um, I guess uh, flexibility in hiring is the thing that uh, may go um, unmentioned. Um, because he can bring a second, ma- like, I think, um, if you live, uh, stateside, um, bring in a second master, um, and then like two support models and then one extra beater type model is a pretty easy way to play public enemies and only have about 11 or 12 points in your, that are possible in a public. And then you just kill it. You know, you can quite easily stop them from scoring more than two points, if not just one. Uh, so he can play to that in certain ways. Um, I would say more of his trickier stuff is in the the schemes um, because he has all the ability to deny scheme markers uh, that's just built into the crew, but also um, 
you know, uh, he can, he can really lean on some of these eight stone models in ways that are sort of un- unexpected, like, uh, like, like I was saying with hidden martyrs, right? So, uh, if I take a bandito and like a Woku, right? Uh, the bandito just easily dies. And then the Woku, it's only defensive tech is really like bulletproof and combat finesse. And you can, in combat finesse is generally not a good ability on like a non big model, right? It's good on the mature because keeping them alive is very important, right? If it was on a master, it would be very important. It would be OP. Um, so generally you don't think a lot about combat finesse. Uh, as being that sort of strong thing. But if it's your second hidden martyrs point, you'll throw on turn five, there's no better use of your 13s than to just keep right. the model alive, you know? So it can be tricky. Uh, you can be cute in certain ways there. So let's transition then over to schemes, Cody. What What is a scheme that you absolutely love to have in the pool when you're playing Bandit? Uh, probably spreading them out. Um, like Manuel and I were talking about before, we got that fistful of script ability that's on uh, Mad Dog, Sue, and Parker, I think is the only three places, uh, where if they kill a model, you can drop a friendly ski marker, in this case, base-to-base with the model before you remove it. So any kill you get on the enemy side of the board can be a potential um, spread-them-out marker. Um, I think he's probably the best in Outcast at doing that. Interesting. How about you, Manuel? Is there a particular scheme that you absolutely love to see uh, in the pool when you're playing Parker? It's it's a special one for me because usually you wouldn't think a ranged crew of doing leave your mark. But I think Parker especially, if he goes to the middle, he's resilient, he can be healed, he denies the enemy scheme markers, he leaves his own. He's a really good candidate just to score this, leave your mark, and deny the enemy from doing it. That that makes a ton of sense. So let's flip the script a little bit then, um, uh, Manuel. Let's say that um, I'm playing against a bandit crew. So my opponent is playing Parker, and I'm looking at the pool and trying to decide what schemes I want to take. Is there... Um, is there any schemes in there that I should just make sure I avoid because Parker counters it really well? Yeah, with all the... Eating the ski marker things, it's really, really dangerous to bring these heavy scheming type things. Like spread them out, everything where you have to leave like two, three, four ski markers in enemy territory. It's going to be really hard to score these. Yeah. Uh, how about for you, Cody? Is there any poison pill schemes out there that um, I should avoid if I'm facing Parker? Yeah, just the scheme ones. Um I guess just to speak, uh, because we'll probably be in GG2, I hope, when this comes out, hopefully. Um, <laughs> so, like, in GG1, there are two examples of ones you obviously shouldn't bring, which is Runic Binding, but you should never bring that, and Sabotage, uh, but you should probably also never bring that. But even if you were foolish enough to bring them into anyone, you definitely shouldn't bring them into Parker, because you could just, uh, you got to come across the board and eat those scheme markers. Uh, you got to come across the board, and he can just easily ski- drop uh, the eat those scheme markers or drop his own to deny certain ones. So I guess to make it broader, anything that involves putting schemes around the enemy deployment zone is probably a no-go. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Just because of that ability um, for him to wipe them uh, off the board without, you know, with efficiency, um, as we've been talking about, if there's been a theme so far, it's been that. So guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about second level play and I want to talk about weaknesses and counters. So we'll be right back. 
always my favorite segment in every deep dive because I get to find out um, what happens as I get better with the crew and it also helps me tech against it. So Manuel, um, you play a couple games with Parker, you play five games with Parker, you start playing 10, 15 games with Parker. And typically what you're going to find is that there's some hidden strengths, some things that you end up unlocking, um, as you get better. So what are some, what is something that is a little less obvious, something that a potential new Parker player isn't going to pick up on, but as you get good with Parker, you definitely start to notice. I think the biggest part about learning Parker is this. When do I use what ability? When do I want to discard a card to get the extra interact action? When I want to use my movement tricks and like just getting this feeling for him when he's the most efficient in this situation. It's like there's like always a way to score points with Parker. They are sometimes not that obvious and you just have to think around corners like the activation order and where can I get what kind of bonus actions, bonus interact actions or extra attacks to really, really score my points. And I think this is the most important lesson to learn to really get good with Parker and all the bandit stuff. Um, so, Cody, I mean, you at the very beginning of, the, uh, of this episode talked about you think he's a good beginner uh, master, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what makes him second level? What do you like as, if someone picks him up as their first master um, as they start getting better with him? What are they going to figure out? Yeah, I think um, the, the main thing that I've talked about as being sort of his big strength uh, for me for a list building uh, perspective is probably like the second level. Cause, cause on the base level, the reason I think he's a good starter master is because you just attack, <laughs> attack what you can and <laughs> charge towards where you need to go to score your points. Right. Right. I think that's pretty self-explanatory and it, it helps you avoid some of the, the early traps that are, that are big when you're first getting into the game where you're, you know, you're just making every attack and you're never ever going to score your points. He, he can do that. He could do both. Uh, so that's right. his biggest strength, I think, on just like the base level. Um, on the secondary level, I really think it is, it's going to sound silly, but like the access to the plus flips um, is sort of like playing, like managing your expectations around uh, what your damage output can do is sort of like a second level play in that like um, just being just being okay with uh, having activations do nothing because you know you're you know you're going to hit red eventually. You know your plus flips are giving you a significant hand advantage. You know you don't need to stand in certain places to um, uh, be threatened, right? Unlike other crews, like like in other crews, you may think, well, I'm not going to make certain attacks because I don't have you know three severes in my hand. With Parker, um, I'm almost okay with all my severes being in my deck. Because I'm going to make my attacks at 12 inches. Uh, most threat ranges of uh, specific models are 11 inches. You know, I'll get my 12 inch wizard out. I'll put it right in between the two. I'll say, there's no way you can get me. Uh, if you have a 12 inch threat range, I'll, there, you know, I'm going to stand right where the box is in between us so that there's no straight line. So I'm not in yep. the threat range, you know, so there's no uh, commitment to danger um, that you're taking. You're just taking your attack actions and you're, you're, you're eventually going to hit the good stuff, right? And then the second level play comes from uh, what happened as a result of that, right? 
Got it. You know, where, where are things going good? Where are things going bad? Where do you need to lean? Where do you need to pull, pull back? Uh, that's the second level play. Where does Doc need to be running? Because uh, this flank is about to collapse. That's like this, the biggest second level play other than just like protecting Doc too. Like that's also sure. a huge part of it. Um, so I'd say um, not getting too fixated on like trying to take focus shots and hit severe damage, you know, uh, just like taking what you can and then figuring it out from the, you know, like being more flexible on the fly is I think Parker's biggest strength. Like Manuel said, there's always a way to score your points. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and I would imagine being able to Manuel's point to be able to identify what that is um, and how to get there, I would imagine is, is key. So here's another way to think about it, Cody, or another way to phrase the question. Then um, when you are reading the forums, when you are watching battle reports, when you reading AWP, is there things that you hear people talk about related to Parker that just tells you that they haven't figured them out yet? Hmm. I would say. um too much reliance on like the drop it trigger or like, cause that, cause that's the first thing you read, you read the drop it synergies and then you lean a little too hard into those, I think. But I'm sure we could talk about it in terms of countering, but there, there, if, if your opponent is very knowledgeable, they know how to position their drop it schemes where they'll be the least effective. Um, I would also say, <laughs> uh, maybe people getting tilted because Parker did nothing in his activation because that just, that just happens. Yeah. You have to be okay with that playing Parker. He's going to have activations where he does zero damage. Not every game, but if you're playing an equally skilled person, they know that when you damage them, you get to discard a card and get an interact, which is a potential fast. So, uh, stoning damage off of this model, for example, is effectively slowing another model. Right. Interesting. So you have to be okay with knowing that some Parker activations are going to be nothing. He's going to do almost nothing. Uh, and then playing around that and not getting tilted, I stuff I think is the biggest second level. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know if I can play Malifaux without getting tilted. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so Manuel, um, if you are playing the bandit crew and you're facing another opponent, um, what is something that that opponent can do that's going to make your life harder? Um, so if I'm preparing to go against a bandit crew, what are some things that I can do that are going to throw, throw a monkey monkey into that rent or throw a monkey wrench into the gears? And there are like two things I'm really, really afraid of. One is like a lot of dust clouds <laughs> just appearing on the battlefield and just have these, obscuring mist like everywhere because then I'm forced to go to melee and I can do this with a Parker crew but there are a lot of opponent crews that are just better at it and the other point is the really really fast crews that can like outrun me mm. get me into melee bind me into melee and where I don't have the chance to like run away, kite them back because they are like always in my face. How about for you, Cody? Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, models that can really bog down mad dog that stinks. Um, so that, so, and, and you know, the concealments can also be a pain. Um, 
Like, I think the perfect example that will probably end up being a really bad matchup for him is English Ivan, who just dropped with the Explorer stuff. So on the surface level, you're like, well, I have plus flips to ignore concealment. And then I have blow it to hell to get rid of the shadow markers. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're losing that efficiency off your plus flips because he just has concealment for free and then he's summoning off of Mad Dog, uh, just bogging him down, even if he's removing shadow markers, he's, he's not making meaningful attacks because he doesn't ignore concealment. So, like, uh, chaff that can just sort of sit on certain models really stinks. Like, it, it really stinks to have a, a Parker activation where something is engaging him and he needs to shoot something else. Uh, and maybe you stone for the mask to try to hit his reposition trigger to get out, but then you're only stat five. So maybe they know you stone for a trigger, so they'll cheat higher or, you know, what do you do? Do you just top deck it and hope to get that mask and repo out? Do you just disengage and then charge away? Um, getting bogged down by, like Manuel said, the faster models can really stink. No, that makes, that makes sense. Anything you can do to impact that efficiency, right? Yeah, and I, I do think concealment is worse than um, cover, um, like Manuel said. Uh, the negatives to damage track, you don't care as much about the uh, losing that all of your plus flips across the crew. That's, that's, a big, that's a big problem. All right. Well, guys, I think that gives us a kind of a good sense of, of, uh, of Parker and uh, the Bandit crew. What I want to do is take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about um, something a little bit more generic. We're going to talk about um, actual actionable advice that people can listen to and take in order to get better at Malifaux. So we'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. All right, so Manuel, I'm going to give you a scenario. Um, you're, you're sitting down with a buddy, um, someone who's been playing Malifaux for a little bit, not nearly as long as you are, and they're frustrated. They just consistently are losing. They just can't can't seem to win a game to save their life, and uh, they're 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 looking for some advice. Um, is there something you think a listener could do? Um, that will have an impact on their ability to do well in the game? What, what is something someone can do to get good? For me, the most important thing is to like talk, the, talk after the game. If I want, really want to get better, I take a friend of mine and I know he's just a better tabletop player than I am. And I get him to play some games against me. And after the games, we will talk. And he will be like, okay, you remember turn two when you did this? Why didn't you do this? Or have you considered this? 
and he's gonna ask me why did you do this and in explaining my choices and seeing what he saw as my choices i can think about all these tactical approaches and this is what really makes one a better player i guess I, I, that's fantastic advice. And I have to, if I look back on things that I've done that have improved um, my game, it's been that playing people better than me and taking advantage of uh, the, the, the post-credit discussion and uh, finding out what they saw that I didn't and kind of learning, you know, cause that's how you learn how they think, right? That's how you learn how they approach the game, which, which it can't hurt you if they're a winning player. How about you, Cody? Um, new person in South Florida, wants to play the game. They're super frustrated because you keep whooping their ass. Um, what are some practical advice that you can offer? Well, so um, with my co-host Jimmy from Swamp Fiends, he's leveled up like massively. He's, I mean, he's probably played less than 50 games um, over the course of the year because he started in January and, you know, COVID hit and all that stuff. And most of them have been against me, but I think one thing that we have done that I've done consistently with him is, and that has helped him level up a bunch is, well, I would say I, I, what I haven't done is something that people say a lot where they, they like play differently um, in casual versus tournament. And I think that is just, uh, and that's going to sound harsh, but let me explain better. Um, And I think that's just a, a terrible way to do that. And the way I play casual and tournament is the same way in insofar that I try to model what I want my opponent to do in certain ways. Um, what does that mean? Uh, so I guess to, to the, to the big point I'm trying to make is like whenever my opponent does something that is clearly not a strategic choice, but is a choice on, on the back of memory or um, you know, just understanding or something like that. Like I always tell them that that's wrong. Like in tournaments and da, 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 like sometimes I don't know that if it's a strategic choice or not, but like, for example, if, you know, if, if someone's coming into pride and they're going to cheat a card, I'll be like, I'm going, I'm going to steal that. Uh, I'm going to eat that severe because you have a sin token on you. If uh, they're going over, you know, to engage something at the end of the turn and I'm like, Oh, this, this thing has deadly pursuit. It's just going to walk away. You know, like I think that that, that's not a, a good way to level up yourself, but it is a good way to uh, level up your opponents in a way that will level you up, you know, because the way I think about it is I always want my wins to be purely from strategy. I don't think memory is skill in this game. Interesting. Uh, I know some people think it is. I don't think memory is skill. Uh, I only think like, like meta, stra- not meta, um, macro strategy and like micro strategy or skill. Uh, and like, you know, the differences between those two. So I never like try to, I don't know, it's, 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 it's hard to say. I, I, think I, I think I'm smoking with your grown, Cody. So I'm going to try to throw something back at you and tell me if I'm on the right track here, which is one, um, you want the information to be as perfect as possible, right? So you don't want a situation where your opponent is making a move and it's obvious that they have forgotten something about your crew your models your cards or otherwise they wouldn't be making that right so you you want to make sure that they're not doing that and as soon as you activate and go to the model they go oh i didn't know he could do that i wouldn't have made this move you don't want that situation you want um you want the win to be not because i know more than you do and understand and, and know the cards better than you do does that make sense 
Yeah, yeah, like gotchas, but also just like positioning stuff. It's like, oh yeah, don't don't engage this guy. Like, don't stand base to base with this guy. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Like, um, just stuff that you clearly wouldn't make the strategic choice to do this. I I think it's important to be that kind of honest with your opponent, and it'll come back to you. Like the last game Jimmy and I had um, was Lord Cooper versus um, Jack Dahl, and we spent probably half of the game discussing like the last two turns, even though there was only like six models left because it's like, well, if you go here, I'm going to do this, you know? And then if you go there, I'm going to do this as well. You know, if, if you go, if you go here and try to kill this dog and you fail, that dog is just going to teleport over here and score this point. So I think unless you got red in hand, you shouldn't do this because it's not going to result in a point here. The only way for you to win this game is to score your strat point this turn. So you have to just get there and like stand on this point. You know, you can't make that attack, that kind of stuff. I think, I think playing that sort of open kimono style with your opponent, it comes back to you. And, and that's slightly different than what Manuel was talking about, because Manuel was talking about a post-game discussion. You're talking about, let's talk through this together, right? Let's let's figure out from a meta standpoint, not I'm playing this crew, you're playing that crew. Let's look at the board together and let's talk through some possibilities and and kind of work this out together. And, and during that conversation, you potentially are both leveling up. Yeah. And it's tricky because you can't ask people to do that. Right. You can't like, you can't ask people to be like, well, can you tell me, you know, what I should do, you know, and you can't be like, well, can in you- a practice game, you can, right. You can set that off. It's like, Hey, you know, th- that's one of the things I want to do in this, in this matchup. Yeah. But I think, I think it's, I think it's more effective if you model it, you know what I'm saying? Same with, clean, okay. same with clean play. Like, I don't, I'm not like a stickler for people using widgets, but I do it myself because I want to know that I won based off my skill and not, you know, fussing movement around. And I think if you model certain, those, those certain things, then you, then it comes back to you. If you play clean, you, you are inspiring, hopefully cleaner play on the other side, or if you're playing clean, uh, it's a little bit, puts you in a better position to call it out when it's not happening on the other side. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Manuel, when you were learning Malifaux, um, can you remember something specifically that made you better? Uh, so something that happened, something you realized, something that you discovered in the game that made you a better player? For me, because it's really unique to Malifaux, it's, it was handling the cards. Like knowing when really to cheat and when to just let the model go. Oh boy. This like, <laughs> That's a huge skill. Yeah. Yeah. This like, okay, now this, this is really important for me. This will score me points. So I use my cards. This model's got no chance to score me any points in the near future. Okay, I don't cheat for it. Yeah, it's understanding that the difference between you could cheat and you should cheat. Um, and it, that's that's tough, especially for beginners, because you're sitting there, you know you've got the card to stop what their, your opponent is trying to do. You've got the card. Um, but thinking about it in a larger context can be a huge, huge challenge. Um, it, it's a mistake I still make. Um, and Cody, I'm, I would imagine it's a mistake you see other people making. Yeah, I, I, I try to tell people, don't play, uh, don't touch my stuff, Malifaux, you know, like, <laughs> like, just let stuff happen and like play through your strengths. Don't play uh, against theirs. You know what I'm saying? That's like always like the best way to uh, think from like a macro level. I think if you spend too much effort, um, 
belly aching about something going away, then it's just not going to help you. Just always play through what is strong, where you are strongest on the table. Like we were talking about Parker earlier. It's like the, the second level skill is like just flipping your cards and then uh, realizing where you're strong and then playing through that and not trying to shore up your weaknesses too much. That makes a ton of sense. Well, guys, I appreciate it. Uh, Manuel, do you have any uh, plugs or call outs you want to uh, get out there? No, it's just, I hope that this pandemic leaves us soon so that we can play at the tables again. Amen. Because uh, Vazal is nice and Vazal is fine, but it's nothing in comparison to really get together with your friends and really push these minis over a, a table. I, I completely agree. So let's wear a mask so we can play mini games again. How's that sound? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and if there's ever been an incentive, I think, regardless of what you think um, about, uh, well, I don't understand why a pandemic is a political issue anyway. The bottom line is, is that especially here in the U.S., we have a huge incentive uh, to get back on the tables because if we can start playing tournaments again at a national level, we can bring back the USFT, which means we can finally stop introducing Cody as the best player <laughs> in the country because he can start losing and other people can show that uh, they're the best player. Um, how about you, Cody? Let's uh, let's plug that podcast. Yeah. Listen to Swamp Fiends um, where podcasts are available. Um, yeah. I, I just saw uh, on Twitter today that like, Australia was having like a 45 person age of Sigma I tournament too. Yeah, I was like, I saw oh, that too. Son of and, and it was a video. It was an AOS, uh, AOS tournament. It was a video of people going across. And what was funny about that is my first reaction goes, how long ago was that? That was like literally my first reaction because oh, it was wow. a ton of people playing. And I'm like, well, that can't be like today. And it was today. Um, I've got a lot of friends in Australia and, you know, they had some geographical advantage. Sure. Um, but they also had very strict protocols that were enforced. And guess what? While I'm still stuck in my house uh, trying to, you know, uh, play um, with people that have to go through 10 different hoops in order to be able to walk in my walk into my home. Mm -hmm. um, they're there with a 30 man uh, AOS tournament and they're pushing models around. Nobody's wearing a mask because uh, the pandemic just doesn't exist where they are. Um, so yeah, I hear you, man. I miss it. Yeah. I miss it bad. Um, I am looking forward to going uh, camping here uh, in about a month or so though. Um, everybody's going to get their tests and uh, it's become the highlight of my pandemic time now because I actually get to spend time with other human beings and actually play games. So, awesome. all right, guys, um, I do appreciate it. Um, and well, I'd love to have you on again, Cody. I'm sure I can't avoid having you on again. Um, and, uh, I look forward to, I'm sure I would imagine our tilt episode that I'm on your pod will be out before this one is out. So I had a great time. All right, guys. And for those of you that stuck around to the end, Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you.
right. Um, probably won't spend. I mean, you could do. A whole, uh, I have done a whole episodes on this, <laughs> but um, the the idea here, uh, I was thinking, is um, not theory type stuff, right? Not like think about this when you're, you know, sitting by yourself in front of the fire. Like, uh, if you can think of maybe each, you can think of one or two things that people can hear this episode and then immediately hit the table and it's going to up them up them a little bit right things it's going to improve them a little bit so some practical uh level up advice does that make sense uh, yeah, like directly or like also after the games you played anything all right anything that you think that um another way to think about it is you've you know and this is how i'll introduce it is you're sitting with a buddy who's super frustrated and there you want to try to give them some a little, little baby steps to getting better what are some of those baby steps um little things that they can do does that make sense yeah all right um i'll start with you then manuel perfect all right um, and well, we're going to start with you again because Cody finished us. All right. And um, the idea being is, is what what does somebody figure out? So something that's not obvious. We've talked about what I consider the obvious so far. What are some things people unlock as they get better with the bandit crew? That's the idea here. Okay. Yeah. Great. Right. Um, so Manuel, the big thing here for this segment is um, I don't want to go through every single strategy. I don't want to go through every single scheme. I want to keep things in the context of um, where the bandit crew excels. So if you are looking at a pool and you have all, access to all of the outcast masters, when are you choosing bandits? So what, what needs to be there to make bandit the best choice? Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, great. So I'm going to start with you. Um, we'll talk strategies, okay? All right. third edition. My first guest is Manuel Vindish and or actually both of my guests. Let's try that again. Uh, uh, you know what? I was thinking that first segment went longer than it did. I shouldn't have taken the break. Oh, well. <laughs> Sorry. I was enamoring on. <laughs> it was me, not you, dude. All right. So, um... Manuel, do you want to start us off here? I'll ask you what kind of, what the style of master is. Yeah, sure. All right, great. I'll bring us back. How oh, I want to bring us back, though. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.